Okay, good evening. Take your Bibles, please, and let's open to Psalm 69 tonight. Um, of course, normally Wednesday night, Pastor Brendan is uh, um, teaching us, and we really appreciate uh, all the work that Pastor Brendan puts in week after week after week after week. He's really carried a, a, a big load, um, which we really appreciate. Um, today, there was a, had a couple of appointments in the family. And so uh, knowing that, uh, he spoke to me a couple of weeks ago and said, uh, could I look after the Bible study tonight because of those appointments, which is uh, absolutely fine. So this is, um, that was been the plan for a couple of weeks. Um, Pastor Brennan was going to be here tonight, um, but he's a little bit off. Um, and so it probably worked out well um, for that reason as well. Um, so uh, he's uh, got a night at home with the family tonight. Um, which works out really well. So, okay, Psalm 69. We're going to read the whole psalm, and uh, I want to, I want us to pay particular attention as we come to verses 22 to 28. We're going to read the whole lot, but these verses 22 to 28 are of particular uh, interest uh, to us uh, this evening. So, Psalm 69, reading from verse one. Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary of my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. They that hate me without cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. O God, thou knowest my foolishness, and my sins are not hid from thee. Let not them that wait on thee, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those that seek thee be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel. Because for thy sake I have borne reproach. Shame hath covered my face and become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children for the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up and the reproaches of them that reproached thee are fallen upon me when I wept and chastened my soul with fasting that was to my reproach I made sackcloth also my garment and became a proverb to them they that sit in the gate speak against me, and I was the song of the drunk drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is unto thee, O God, in an acceptable time. O God, in the multitude of thy mercies, hear me in the truth of thy salvation. Deliver me out of the mire, and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from them that hate me, and out of the deep waters. Let not the water flood overflow me neither let the deep swallow me up and let not the pit shut her mouth upon me hear me O Lord for thy loving kindness is good turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies and hide not thy face from thy servant for I am in trouble hear me speedily draw nigh unto my soul and redeem it deliver me because of mine enemies thou hast not Thou hast known my reproach and my shame and my dishonour. Mine adversaries are all before thee. 
Reproach hath broken my heart. I am full of heaviness, and I look for some to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but found none. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table become a snare before them, and that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened that they see not, and make their loins continually to shake. Pour out thine indignation upon them, and let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Let thy ha their habitation be desolate, and let none dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom thou hast smitten, and they talk to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded. Add iniquity unto their iniquity, and let them not come into thy righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and not be written with the righteous. But I am poor and sorrowful. Let thy salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song, and will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an oxen or bullock that hath horns and hoofs. The humble shall see this and be glad, and your heart, and your heart shall live that seek God. For the Lord heareth the poor, and despiseth not his prisoners. Let the heaven and the earth praise him, the seas and everything that moveth therein. For God will save Zion, he will build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and have it in possession. The seed also of his servants shall inherit it, and they that love his name shall dwell therein. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word this evening let's pray heavenly father thank you uh, for your word it is uh, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path thank you that uh, you provided in this word uh, everything we need for life and godliness and uh, father we do uh, acknowledge that uh, you have also provided for us the spirit of god to illuminate the scriptures to us lord we uh, we, under, we know that uh, the natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God. Uh, we know that even Christians born again need the help of the Spirit of God to, uh, to help us to understand the Scriptures, to rightly divide the Scriptures, and this is the kind of help that we're asking for this evening. Uh, we thank you that all Scripture is profitable, and we pray that we might uh, receive the profit uh, that uh, you provided for us in this portion of your Word and other portions of Scriptures that relate to it. And so uh, bless us in our time of Bible study this evening. We ask it in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. I'd like to start with a question. What does the Bible say our attitude should be towards those who do great evil? Um, every night on the prayer sheet, uh, we have a prayer point, praying for Christians in lands of persecution. And last week, this was the prayer point praying for persecuted Christians in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And this was the prayer point. 20 Congolese Christians were beheaded and several others kidnapped by Muslims after the Allied Democratic Forces struck the village of Kainama last week. Hospitals, food stores, shelters and vehicles have been destroyed. Um, that was the prayer point for persecuted Christians last week and, and, and it's uh, that that wasn't just last week that sort of thing happens every off, often it's not just in the Congo in other places uh, as well 
Now, probably none of us have been directly affected by such acts of evil. But of course, Muslim extremists and ISIS terrorists aren't the only expressions of evil. There are many forms that can affect us and some do affect us. So what does the Bible say should be our attitude towards those who do great evil? Well, tonight we're looking at uh, Psalm 69, which deals with the question, what do we do with the feelings of rage or the emotions of anger or more specifically, the desire for vengeance, reprisals, retaliation when someone does something terribly wrong to us? You know, the, the most exciting stories are... For me, are those where great evil or great injustice is portrayed and uh, as you get into the story you sort of bristle with anger when those uh, who've done such bad things seem to get away with it but then there's some noble, some humble, some sacrificial person who risks his life and uh, long story short captures the villain and uh, brings uh, that person to justice and there's a deep sense of satisfaction in such stories like that where justice is done in the end. And that's what uh, Alexander Dumas's Count of Monte Cristo is all about. It's a thrilling story about how one man so terribly sinned against gradually and progressively and meticulously and eventually made all the wrongs right. Everything made right in the end, except one thing. He doesn't get the girl back in the end. He should, okay? He should get the girl back. It should end in that way because that would be justice. And it left me feeling a little bit hollow. But this is just a story. And yet in real life, in real life, things happen, things are done. How should we think? How should we feel about those who do terribly wrong things against us? What should we do? How should we think about such this thing called vengeance? Uh, Romans 12 tells us to leave it in God's hands. Um, that's God's concern. But then on Sunday we saw in Romans 13 that sometimes God takes that vengeance and he puts it in the hands of government. For government authorities to act on his behalf in meeting out the punishment. But often they don't. Okay? Often they, they don't take up that uh, responsibility God has put in their hands. They don't do it properly. And so we're, we're still here with this question. And I think we probably need some help with it. There's a group of psalms and I've listed them for you. There's 10 of them in number. That are, they are called imprecatory psalms. And we call them that is because they include imprecations. And that is calling down judgment, calling down punishment, calling down curses on the enemy. Um, these are not psalms that say god please save them god please forgive them they are psalms which say basically god please punish them and usually these psalms are considered problems for christians like us because jesus taught us to love our enemies and to do good to those that hate you and bless those that curse you and pray for them that despitefully use you and when jesus was on the cross when he was had a terrible 
The worst thing that could possibly be done to anyone, when that was being done to Jesus, he prays not that they'd be judged, but they'd be forgiven. He doesn't pray against them, he prays for them. Father, forgive them. He doesn't not punish them, not condemn them, not damn them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so this is the way we understand how this is how we understand how we're supposed to respond. And yet we read some of these Psalms and it seems like they're saying that we should do the opposite to what Jesus said and to what Jesus did. So let's take Psalm 69 and try to understand it and how it should shape how we think about this thing called vengeance. And for us, the way that we're going to proceed, the key thing for us in this study is going to see how the New Testament authors use this psalm. How the New Testament authors understood it. And we get a lot of help from the New Testament authors because this psalm is quoted in numerous places in the New Testament. And what is interesting that some of the parts of this some which are quoted in the New Testament, are those imprecatory parts, verses 22 to 28. And so the point there is that the New Testament authors didn't shy away from this psalm, as I think you know, we are often to do, we would often do. They didn't shy away from it. They loved Psalm 69. Paul loved it. John loved it. Jesus loved it. Jesus lived in it. As a matter of fact, this is one of the psalms that carried him to the cross. And this is one of the things, the, 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 the psalms that sustained him through the cross. It was, it was this psalm that helped him fulfill the, the will and purpose of God manifestly. So the New Testament writers found this psalm especially helpful in describing the work of Christ upon the cross and what it means for us. So what I want to do, I want to just give us a quick overview of Psalm 69. And then I want us to see how this psalm it was used by the New Testament writers. And get us, that'll give us an understanding of how we're to approach it. And then for us to make some applications or, or make some points as to how this psalm should affect us. So first, let's, uh, give, let me just give you an overview of Psalm 69. The situation, we don't know the specifics, but we can tell that here's a situation where David feels completely overwhelmed by his enemies. You pick that up from the first few verses. And they don't appear to be military enemies. We don't get the impression that this is, you know, uh, someone's armies coming against him and he's going to get his men together to go into battle against those enemy armies. It's not that kind of situation. It appears to be personal enemies. We don't know exactly who they were or why they were so opposed to him or where they manifested their hatred or, or when it was. We don't know that. But we do know, we can pick out that these enemies were heartless and they were very, very vicious. We can also work out, David tells us, that he knows he's not perfect. Okay, if you look at verse 5, he says, Oh God, thou knowest my foolishness. And my sins are not hid from thee. David admits he's, wrong, he's, he's done the wrong thing. He acknowledges he doesn't always get it right. And he, 
He acknowledges that God knows that. But, but the point that he's making here is the hostilities that he's feeling in this psalm are not on account of any of those sinful things that he's just been thinking about. Okay? This is not a Bathsheba issue, this one. Okay? He knows he's not perfect, but he knows it's not because he's done the wrong thing that this is happening to him. Look at verse 4. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. So, so he acknowledges he's not, he's not sinless, but the hatred that he's receiving really is unjustifiable in this situation. He says, I haven't given any reason. It's not for my sake that I'm suffering like this. Look down to verse 7. He says, because for thy sake I have borne reproach. And shame hath covered my face. Okay, it's it's not because of me and any wrong that wrongdoing on my part. The reason why I'm being treated like this is actually, Lord, because of because of you, and because I'm identifying with you, and because I stand with you, and because I represent you. This is the reason why I'm enduring this difficult situation. Verse 9, for the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. He's zealous for God. He's zealous for the Lord's house. And his point here is that the suffering that he is enduring, enduring is undeserved. Not only is it undeserved, but it's precisely because he identifies with God and precisely because he loves the Lord. These people, his enemies, they hate God and therefore they hate David, who is a follower of God. It's the people who hate you, God, who are making my life miserable because I follow you. So he pleads in verse 14 for God to rescue him from this miserable situation. Deliver me out of the mire. And let me not sink, let me be delivered from them that hate me and out of the deep waters. Verse 18, draw nigh unto my soul and redeem it, deliver me because of mine enemies. He's praying for his own deliverance, he's praying for his own salvation as we'd expect he would. But then there's a huge shift that comes around about verse 22 and through to verse 28. And those verses are entirely imprecations. Okay? No longer is he just praying for his own deliverance, his own salvation. He's actually he's not just praying for himself. He's now praying against his enemies. He's praying for their judgment. He's praying for their condemnation, praying for their to be cursed. He prays to God that these enemies and God's enemies, he prays that they'd experience the full force of God's judgment, that they not be acquitted. He's not praying for their salvation. He's praying for their condemnation. Verse 22. Let their table become a snare before them. In other words, when they sit down for a meal, when they sit down for a meal to rejoice and enjoy together, a happy time together, let them be caught unawares. You know, let some calamity overtake them when, when they least expect it, when they're together having the, the best time together with family and friends. Let them be judged at that moment. And that which should have been for their welfare, 
sitting down, have a great meal together, let it, that be the, 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 at, for a trap. That's the thing where their judgment comes upon them. Verse 23, he says, let their eyes be darkened that they see not and make their loins continually to shake. Pour out thine indignation upon them and let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. And then as you come towards the end of the psalm, there is this other cry for help. Along with, Lord, if and when you deliver me, I promise to praise you. Verse 29, I am poor and sorrowful. Let thy salvation, O God, set me up on high. Verse 13, I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving when the Lord delivers me. From all my enemies, verse 34, let the heaven and the earth praise him, the sea and everything that moveth therein. So in summary, here we have King David, not a perfect man. He acknowledges that, yet he's a man who loves the Lord. He's zealous for the Lord. He's zealous for the glory of the Lord and the glory of God's house. And yet he's enduring persecution undeservedly. From the enemies of God who are also for that reason, therefore his enemies. And in the middle of this great lament, when he's crying out for deliverance, he devotes seven verses, verses 22 to 28, calling upon God to intervene and to punish his enemies. That's an overview of this psalm. So secondly, let's consider how this psalm is therefore then used in the New Testament. What does the New Testament make of this psalm? How does the New Testament deal with Psalm 69? Well, first it should be noted that the New Testament, in quoting this psalm, is never embarrassed by it. The New Testament writers aren't critical of this psalm or any portion of it. New Testament writers don't, you know, correct something that's wrong and defective in David's thinking. They don't treat the, Im the imprecations there as a personal vengeance, sinful personal vengeance, which is a rebukable thing, but they don't see it that way. As with any other scriptures, New Testament writers believe this is inspired it's all to be it's all god's word it's all to be honored and revered it's all sacred truth it's all for our benefit and this is the way the new testament writers present it to us so what we find is that the new testament quotes psalm 69 in at least two important ways it quotes this psalm as the words of David. Okay? Words that were written by David about his own situation. That's one way the New Testament writers approach this psalm. And the other way the New Testament writers approach this psalm as accepting that they are in fact the words of Christ. That these are the words of Jesus written by the Holy Spirit as a prophecy about Jesus. In other words, a messianic psalm. So these are the two ways that the New Testament writers view Psalm 69, either 
David's own words about his own situation or prophetically, it's a reference to Jesus. So let's look at both of those things. We'll take them one at a time and draw some conclusions about how to understand this psalm, how we read this psalm today, how we're to think about, particularly how we're to think about David's prayer here for the punishment of evil people. So firstly, the, the way that the, the New Testament writers quote this psalm is as, as the, the words of David. Psalm 69 verses 23, uh, 22 and 23 are quoted by Paul in Romans 11 and Paul quotes them as the words of David. Okay, Now I want you to put a bookmark in Romans 11 uh, and uh, leave your Bible open at Psalm 69 but put a bookmark in Romans 11 so we can have a jump over there quickly. But let's First of all, note the verses in Psalm 69 that Paul is going to quote in Romans 11. Paul is going to quote verses 22 and 23 from Psalm 69. So let's look at what those verses say here. Psalm 69 verse 22 says, Let their table become a snare before them. Okay, this is an imprecatory part. Paul's quoting it in Romans 11. Let their table become a snare before them. And that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened that they see not and make their loins continually to shake. These are the two verses that Paul is going to quote in Romans chapter 11. Okay, this is the beginning part of the prayer from David that God would pour out his indignation on his adversaries. That's the expression he used in verse 19. He prays to God that just as they, his adversaries, have given him gold to eat and vinegar to drink, verse 21, even so their table, verse 22, even so their table, their food and their drink would be their undoing. That the bounty that they think that they do have would prove to be a moment of judgment for them. And he prays that they would be blinded, that their eyes would be darkened, unable to find their way, that they would go into this trembling seizure, this shaking would seize them forever. In other words, this is a prayer for their condemnation, for their destruction. Verse 27, add iniquity unto their iniquities and let them not come into thy righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. David consigns them to perdition. He's praying for their damnation. Now you would think that if such a prayer is a sinful personal vengeance, then the Apostle Paul would certainly, at the very least, avoid such a passage or perhaps even correct it. But he just he does exactly the opposite. He runs to this psalm and he runs to some of these imprecatory verses. And he doesn't just do it once, he actually does it twice. Does it in Psalm Romans 11 and Romans 15. He goes straight to one of the most difficult psalms for us to you know, get our heads around. And he goes to the, the part of the psalm which is, is the hardest for us to really get our heads around. And he goes to that part of the psalm to support the point that he's making in Romans 11. 
So he's not at all put off by this psalm. Now in Romans 11, Paul teaches that most of Israel has rejected Jesus as Messiah. In Romans 11, most of Israel has, come, has rejected Jesus as Messiah and therefore has come under the judgment of God. And this judgment of God, part of that is a hardening of their hearts and a blinding of their eyes so that they just don't see. They're in blindness and will continue in blindness, Paul says, until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Romans 11, let's just turn over there now. Bookmark in um, Psalm 69 because we'll be back there. But let's turn over to Romans 11, verse 7. He says, What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election, that is the believing remnant, have obtained it, and the rest, the rest were blinded. Okay, this is the same judgment that David calls for in Psalm 69, verse 23. He says, let their eyes be darkened. Verse 25 here. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. So one of the main teachings of Paul in Romans 11 is that God is judging Israel and part of that judgment that they're presently under because they've rejected their Messiah and still continue to reject their Messiah, part of the judgment of God upon them is this hardening of their hearts and the blinding of their eyes to the truth of the gospel, to the identity of Jesus. And that will continue until God's program for the Gentile nations has run its course, until the fullness of the Gentiles become at the rapture. Okay, We'll continue up to that point. So that's the teaching of Romans 11. That's the teaching of Romans chapter 11, that, that Israel is presently blind to the truth of the gospel. And that blindness is a judgment from God and it will continue up until the time when the Gentile, God's plan for the Gentiles has run its course. That's the point that he's making. And to reinforce that point, to make that point, to give scriptural authority to that point, he goes to Psalm 69. Of all places in the Old Testament that Paul could have gone to to make that point, he goes to Psalm 69 and quotes verses 22 and 23 here in Romans 11, 9 through 11. David saith, and David saith, okay, quoting the words of David, Psalm 69, let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Verse 10, let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always. In other words, the way that Paul interprets the words of David is not as a sinful personal vendetta, sinful personal vengeance, but rather as a reliable expression of what happens to people when they continually reject God's anointed. Okay, that's what was happening to David. That's the point. This is a reliable expression of what happens to people who continually resist and reject God's anointed. That's what happened to the nation of Israel. That's what's happening in Psalm 69. Paul sees it as happening in Psalm 69. There's a principle there. If you continually reject God and his anointed, if you continually refuse and reject 
then God's judgment will come upon you. It's a hardening of the heart. It's a blinding of the eyes. It's exactly the situation with the nation of Israel. Paul makes that point in Romans 11. David is God's anointed representative. And through the psalm, it's obvious he's being rejected. He's being reviled. He's being reproached. And David has actually manifested a lot of patience with his enemies. If you go to Psalm 109 verse 4, he says, For my love, they are my adversaries. He says, I, 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 I have reached out in love, and for that, what I receive in return is this adversarial attitude. David has showed love. David has done good. Back Psalm 69 verse 4, he said, I restored that which I took not away. I didn't, I didn't take it away. I didn't deprive people of it. They, loss was incurred somewhere else, but I was the one who restored that. I was the one who stepped in and helped and provided assistance. This is an expression of his good attitude and good works. And this is the, the way that he responded initially. But it comes to a point when David's speaking as God's inspired, anointed servant. It gets to a point where after rejection, 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 David consigns his adversaries to blindness, to darkness, to hardness, to judgment. Not just now, but more. Verse 24, God's indignation poured upon them, God's wrathful anger taking hold of them. They will experience this kind of judgment because they're rejecting God. They're rejecting God's anointed. See, it wasn't just, you know, you know, David's over here done the wrong thing and people are against him. No, David is identifying with God. He's representing God. He's God's anointed. And, it, and it's because people are rejecting God that they've rejected him. That's, that's the essence of what's happening here. And people who continue to re reject God, that's the point. Continually, 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 continually will have the judgment of God upon them, hardening their hearts, blinding their eyes. And that's just the beginning. Paul listens to this psalm. And he doesn't just hear emotional words of retaliation in David's voice. He hears sober prophetic words, words of judgment that will come upon people who perpetually and persistently reject God's anointed. And that's why Paul quotes these words in Romans 11. Because in Romans chapter 11, what he's telling us is that the nation of Israel have rejected God's anointed. They are the perpetual enemies of Christ. They're already in darkness. They're already, their minds have already been darkened. That's part of God's judgment and eternal judgment will follow if they don't come to Christ. So this is the first way that the New Testament quotes Psalm 69. Namely, as prophetic words of judgment announced by God's inspired spokesman. These are inspired words of judgment coming from the mouth of God's inspired spokesman, David. Judgment upon the adversaries of God for their perpetual rejection of God's anointed representative. 
Well, the second way that the New Testament quotes Psalm 69 is as if these are the words of Jesus himself. And the reason for this is that David is a type of Christ. And what happened to David as God's royal anointed one is actually a foreshadowing of what would happen to God's anointed son, the Messiah, Jesus. In other words, Psalm 69 is a messianic psalm. Yes, it's, it's David's psalm, but David's a, a type of Christ. So this is a psalm about the Messiah. This is a psalm about Jesus. And it's true that we get a very, very clear sense that Jesus saw in this psalm his own mission. And he lived out this psalm in what, what David, how David experienced it in miniature. Jesus lived out the reality of these things. Much of this psalm is about the cross. And the message there is about Jesus dying on the cross as our saviour. But, but much of the psalm is also about Jesus as the judge. Jesus is saviour and Jesus is also judge. He's the saviour for those who believe. He's the judge of those that continually resist and refuse. I want to give you four quick examples showing you this is a psalm about Jesus. Firstly, this psalm is quoted in John chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. And this is the, this is the place where Jesus cleansed the temple. In John 2, 13 to 17, we read about how Jesus drove out the sellers in the temple. Verse 16, John chapter 2, verse 16 and he, Jesus, said unto them that sold the doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And the next verse, verse 17, goes on to say, As soon as Jesus said that, make not my father's house a house of merchandise, verse 17, it says, And the disciples remembered. And the disciples remembered. As soon as Jesus said that, the disciples remembered. Seeing God, Jesus' passion for God's house, hearing Jesus call his father's house, a house of prayer, he refers to it as a, my father's house. As soon as they see Jesus acting in this way, as soon as they hear Jesus say this, their mind goes immediately to Psalm 69. These were biblically literate men. They were scripturally astute men. When they saw Jesus do this, when they heard Jesus say this, their minds go, hey, that's Psalm 69. John 2, 17, and his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, is consumed with zeal. In other words, the disciples saw in David's words actions that were actually foreshadowing Christ's words and Christ's actions. His disciples saw this psalm as being fulfilled by Jesus in their, before their own eyes. A second place where this psalm is quoted as the words of Jesus is in John chapter 15, verses 24 and 25. If you're quick, you can turn over there. John 15, 24 and 25. Jesus hated by the Jewish leaders in the same way that David was hated by his enemies. Psalm 69, verse 8. 
And this time it's Jesus himself who quotes from Psalm 69. In John 15, 24, Jesus says, If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not sinned. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. Verse 25. But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Quoting from Psalm 69 verse 4. Which says, they that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. So Jesus himself is aware of David's experience. And he sees that as being a foreshadowing of his own. Jesus knew the Psalms. He lived in the Psalms. He knew their content. He interprets what he sees and what, 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 what he knows. He interprets life by what's, what's written in the Psalms. And what Jesus needs to do in a given situation is determined by the Psalms. And how he, he looks at a situation is determined by the Psalms and that determines what he does and what he says because he, his, his life is a fulfillment. He's, he lives in the Psalms. He lives out the truth of the Psalms. And he said, when David is hated by his enemies, enemies, his adversaries, this is pointing to me. And what was, what was happening in David's life is prophetic of me. He's the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies these ones also in Psalm 69 the third time that Psalm 69 is quoted in the New Testament as a reference to Jesus is in John chapter 19 verses 28 to 30 if you're quick enough you can turn over there you'll see that there Jesus on the cross and Jesus brings his own life to a close by intentionally fulfilling Psalm 69 one more time in his own experience. In verse 21, David says, Psalm 69, 21, They gave me also gall for my meat and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. Now, what did David mean by that? We don't know. We don't really know what he meant by that. The, the situation that he's referring to there is not revealed to us. But somehow, whatever his enemies were doing, they were acting in a way that led David to say this. And again, Jesus so lived in the Psalms. He absorbs the Psalms. The Psalms are part of his being. They speak about him. He, he, he will do certain thing because it fulfills the psalm. He will say a certain thing because it fulfills the psalms. Otherwise, we don't know how else to explain John chapter 19 verses 28 to 30. Jesus hanging on the cross. Okay, this, He's hanging on the cross in incredible Agony. This is the worst way to die. This is the worst thing you can do to a person. This is the worst way to die. When, when, you, when you die this way, you don't think about, you know, how can I fulfill a scripture? How can I? You don't think like that when you're dying. You just you, you scream, okay? In this situation, you just you scream. You, you're working out how, how can you breathe? How can you live another breath? And yet Jesus is so, the, the Psalms are so much part of him. That in such a, what we call an unguarded moment, you know, when, when, you know, when what's going to come out of your mouth is, you know, whatever. 
You know, the exasperation of the moment, however that manifests itself, what comes out of Jesus is, is a fulfillment, I'm fulfilling the scripture. You know, someone has said, and I think very, very well, that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John tell us about the facts of the crucifixion, but Psalm 69 gives us the feelings of the crucified. The agony that he endures. Now listen to what it says in John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, okay, fully conscious, knowing everything's accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Okay, he's thinking of scripture. Okay, there's one more scripture, one more scripture for this moment. That the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Verse 29, now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop, and they put it to his mouth. Verse 30, when Jesus therefore received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. And according to the apostle John, Jesus died fulfilling Psalm 69 and what, 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 what more glorious tribute could there be to any psalm? That Jesus' life you know, concludes by fulfilling it. And the very psalm that we think is a problem because it, re, it contains these imprecations. It's, it's the psalm that Jesus lived in so fully. He absorbed it so fully as, as this, this was the psalm that helped him get to the cross. And this was the psalm that in, helped him endure the cross. Got him through it. Fourthly, the fourth place where the New Testament writer quotes this psalm as the words, as, as, as the words of Jesus is found in Romans 15. Romans 15. One more illustration of Psalm 69 as the words of Jesus. In Psalm 69, verse 9, David says to God, The reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. And in Romans 15, where Paul quotes this, the context of Romans 15 is Paul is calling Christians to be patient with each other, particularly patient towards Christians who are weak in their faith, He's calling Christians to deny themselves and be humble and to receive others even when perhaps they're, they're not where in their faith where they should be yet. The context is you've got Christians with different eating habits. Some people think you can and should only eat herbs and others think that's, that's, you can enjoy meat. And, and this, is the, this is the particular situation, petty as it sounds, this is... This is the situation that Paul is addressing and he, and he reaches into Psalm 69 to help the Christians resolve and teach them how to think about this kind of situation. You know, look after one another. Be, be patient with one another. Be, be humble. Don't, don't insist upon your own way. Love one another. Where are you going to go in the Bible to support that thinking? Would you go to an imprecatory psalm? Well, it's amazing that Paul again reaches back to Psalm 69 and verse 9. In Romans 15, 
verse 1, he said, this is what he says. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbour for his good to edification. Verse 3, for even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written in Psalm 69, verse 9, the, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. In other words, Paul takes the words of David. He sees them as being the words of Christ or fulfilled in Christ. In the way that Christ was willing to endure wrong for the Lord, for the Father's sake. And Paul focuses on the example of Christ being treated badly, by being treated extremely badly, yet being receiving that willingly, and he sets that before us as an example to us. Now that seems like a strange thing because it seems like Psalm 69 would take us in the other direction. You know, curse those people who treat you badly and so it seems that Psalm 69 has two ideas when it comes to our understanding that we get from the New Testament one idea certainly is that of judgment the, the idea of judgment is certainly there the implications are not personal retaliation it's not a personal sinful vendetta but it is a public acknowledgement of God's just retribution upon sinful people who persist and persist and persist and persist in rejecting the Lord. And if there is no repentance, if there is no repentance, then there will be a judgment. Sin ultimately will be punished and all the wrong things will be made right ultimately. That is one thought, idea, teaching that comes out of Psalm 69. The other idea is the suffering that we're called to endure. There's the suffering that David had to endure. There's the suffering that Jesus endured. It's a messianic psalm. There's a suffering that Jesus endured as an example to us. There is suffering to be endured for God's sake. And in the case of Christ... The suffering is either the means whereby sinful people are saved or it is the sufferings of Christ upon the cross is the thing which sinful people reject and reject and reject and reject and reject and because they reject that, Jesus will ultimately be their judge. He will be their saviour or if they refuse that, he will be their judge. Ultimately, Well, let's come to our third point. How should Psalm 69 affect us? How should Psalm 69 affect us? Let's step back and just conclude by asking, how are we to, th how are we to think about vengeance today based upon Psalm 69? Three answers. How does Psalm 69 affect us? Number one. It should affect us in this way that we should give our approval of God's judgment. Psalm 69 teaches us that we should give our approval to God's judgment. When we hear the divinely inspired voice of David, the Lord's anointed, suffering for the glory of God and expressing his desire, his approval upon the judgment of God who are 
upon people who are persistently unrepentant, if they're persistently the adversaries of the Lord. David makes the point that such people ultimately do deserve God's judgment and it is right that it comes. And it should comes come when the adversaries of the Lord are unrepentant. There will be a divine judgment coming and that is a day, beloved, that all Christians will ultimately approve of. We might struggle with that now because maybe there is within us a heart that such a person should still be saved and we pray for their salvation. We, we can't imagine the thought of their being judged. We don't want that. But if we understand sin, if we understand salvation, if we understand what God went through for sinners to be saved, if we understand the work of Christ upon the cross, and if we understand what it means to perpetually resist that and reject that and to, and to, and to, to throw it back in God's face, then it gets to the point that, that we even as believers who love the Lord and appreciate what Christ has done, we will understand that judgment must come in ultimately. Revelation 19, 1 and 2 says, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honour and power unto the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged, he hath avenged the blood of his saints. God will avenge. And we will praise him for it. This is something that David's imprecations make plain. And so this is, some, some, this is the way that this psalm should help our thinking God's judgment is just. One day it will fall. One day sin will be judged. One day every, every wrong will be made right. And this needs to be part of our thinking. Second way that this psalm should affect us is it should be a foreshadowing for us of the ministry of Christ. It's a foreshadowing of the ministry of Christ. In Psalm 69, we should hear David speaking about Christ, prophesying about Christ. What David experienced in some smaller ways, Jesus completed in greater ways through his own suffering, through his death upon the cross. David was a type of Christ, but Jesus is the fulfillment and the fulfillment is always greater than the type. And Christ's suffering upon the cross will be the means whereby which many people are saved and for many others their sinful rejection of the work of Christ upon the cross will be the basis of their judgment. Why are people judged for their sin? Because they rejected Christ. They don't believe in Christ. For those who accept the work of Christ upon the cross as their glory, it will save them. But for those who reject it and refuse it Continually, they, they will develop a hardness of heart, blindness of eyes. Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 spells, four and five spell this out very clearly. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God should lead you to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. 
Everything that Jesus did on earth was to show his goodness and his kindness and his forbearance and to demonstrate that he will save anyone who comes to him. Okay? He will restore that which he took not away. Okay? Jesus isn't responsible for the sin. Jesus isn't responsible for the loss. But he will restore it all. But if we turn away from Christ, if we turn away from that, if we refuse to accept that the judgment fell upon Christ, then that God's judgment will fall upon the individual. Psalm 69 should teach us that. And then the third way that Psalm 69 should affect us is as, as an incentive to forgive. As an incentive to forgive. I think that one of the main things that we can say as we do, we, is this, that we do not take the imprecations as encouragement or incentive to curse our enemies. In fact, Paul's way of thinking actually takes us in completely the opposite direction. Paul quotes the psalm in Romans 15 verse 13 to encourage us to deny ourselves rather than to gratify our desire for vengeance. He calls upon us to endure whatever wrong is done for, uh, upon us. Christ is our example. Christ pleased not himself, he says, as it is written, the reproaches of them that fell upon thee fell upon me. In other words, we should be as Jesus. We should forbear. We should forgive. That should be our first response to our enemies. And our second. And our third. And our fourth. Seventy times seven. And it's not because there's no wrath. But because there is judgment coming. And while ever we live and while ever the person lives, I think we should be praying for their forgiveness, praying for their forgiveness, praying for their forgiveness. And if their eyes are blinded now and if they're in, in, in hardness of heart now, we pray that God would open their eyes and help them to see. Even as we pray the same thing for the nation of Israel, there is coming a time where, where the darkness that they're in, they will see the light. They'll come to see Jesus' saviour. Those who are under this judicial judgment of God at this moment will come to know the Lord. And I think we need to be praying for our enemies the same way. Yes, there is a day of judgment coming for them if they continue to refuse. That matters in God's hands. But for now, because we know that that's coming and because we fear that for them, we should be praying that the Lord would deliver them, save them. Romans 12 verse 19. Romans 12 verse 19. It says, Beloved, avenge not yourself. Give place unto wrath. For his written vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. That will happen. That will happen if they continue to reject the Lord. Verse 20. Therefore, if thy enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. If they give you gall to eat, like David said, like they did to Jesus. If they give you vinegar to drink, don't repay them with gall and vinegar. Give them good food. Give them good drink. And so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil. Overcome evil with good. Those burning coals that you heap upon their head by continually reaching out, not in, in, in vindictive ways, but in loving ways. Those burning coals of conviction that you heap upon their head. That, that, that could be something that leads them to repentance. We hope so. We pray so. 
Or it could be something that ultimately leads to their judgment if they continue in their sinful ways. But God will take care of that. We never take it into our own hands. We never take it into our own hands. We follow the words of the anointed Messiah in Luke chapter 6, verse 27. But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, pray for them which despitefully use you, love your enemies as Jesus did. Greater love hath no man than this, and a man laid down his life for his friends, and Jesus laid down his life for his enemies. While we yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what Christ does. Love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great. And ye shall be the children of the highest. Well, I will hope that uh, has been helpful. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that all scripture is given by inspiration. It's all profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Lord, I do pray that this psalm, that our understanding of it, our appreciation of it would be increased this evening. Lord, we know that you are just and righteous. And since that's the case, uh, our situation was, in fact, very precarious because we know, we know that, uh, that we're sinners before you. And because our sin must be punished, Lord, our future is very bleak indeed. And yet we thank you for Christ. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for your plan of salvation. Thank you that you loved us, desired for our salvation so much that you're willing to give your only begotten son who took the punishment that we deserve. Father, we thank you for Christ. And we pray that uh, others would come to know Christ as their saviour too. Uh, Lord, help us to, to love others um, so that, uh, Lord, um, we would be compelled to share the gospel with them. Lord, I pray that our love for others would extend even to those who are our enemies, those who treat us badly. Um, it's very easy for us to become bitter against them and to seek vengeance and to, to have a personal vendetta. It's very natural. It's very understandable. It's not the way of Christ. And so we pray that you teach us to be more like Jesus. There's coming a day of judgment. Absolutely, we see that. But we thank you that today is the day of salvation. And Lord, I do pray that you'd help us to continue to reach out with the message of salvation. Often when we pray for Christian in lands of persecution, we pray that they would have such love for their persecutors, that that love would be such a remarkable thing that it would bring their persecutors to Christ. And we pray that for Christians in lands of persecution. Lord, we pray that for ourselves as well. Pray that you'd help us to respond in such a way that it is so unnatural, it's so otherworldly, it's belongs to heaven and people that people would see that would see our good works and come to glorify our father which is in heaven so lord please uh, continue to teach us your ways work in us and 
Through us we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.